Well, good morning, everybody. I appreciate that these guys did this. So, so just a footnote to what you just saw. Um, would you agree with the statement that it takes effort and planning to grow in Christ-likeness? Nobody drifts into it. You just don't drift into it. And so there's no time like the present to plan how you want to grow over the next uh, year, for example. So our spiritual formation team, which you probably didn't know we had one, and someday I'll introduce them to you, has put together um, a focus in these small groups coming up in October and February and April. Uh, actually, they're on this sheet. I left it out there on the Next Steps uh, desk. So I want to point out the one that is coming up in the fall. There's been a lot of conversation around media and people about mental health issues that are facing us these days. And this small group is by uh, Dr. Henry Cloud called A Mentally Healthy Faith. And he deals with the issues of depression and guilt and shame and anxiety. Um, and, and the Bible has answers for all of that. And so that's going to be the first one we're going to address. So if you want to know more about what we're offering in the small groups upcoming, we also have a class in the Institute by Darren Violet on sin and sanctification. I'm sure that's going to be well attended. Um, then um, just grab one of these on your way out. See any one of those guys or even Rich uh, Gordon, if you know him, and talk to them about it. So I noticed the, the one common denominator there was when Pastor Bob came to me, so if you see me walking up to you, you know what's coming, all right? You've just been warned. All right, let's open our Bibles then this morning to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to start reading in verse 9. Um, okay. Can you hit that first slide for me, th please? Because I don't know if I can do that. No, I can't. Okay, that's all right. We'll just go ahead and do this anyway. Now, I'm going to begin with a parable. And the parable is actually, it's not mine. It was written by a woman by the name of Karen Maines, um, an author, uh, who um, wrote this, this story um, about a wedding day. And we've all been to weddings, and so, so here's, here's the scenario, right? You've got every, all the guests are assembled. They're all waiting. Everybody's smiling. There's a kind of a buzz in the air. Everybody, you know, everybody loves a wedding. And then you've got the groom and his guys down here, and you've got, you've got the brides, bridesmaids all over here, and they're waiting. And you, you, imagine a center aisle just for now, okay? There's a center aisle. And at some point after everything is set in place, the music begins, and the back doors open, and in walks the bride. Everybody's waiting for this moment. And the minute they see her, of course, they all stand. But in this parable, they are aghast at what they see. In fact, one of the, the bridesmaids drops her bouquet and covers her face, and she starts crying. The groom is looking, and he's horrified. And what they see is the bride. She's got a huge black eye blood coming out of her nose, her dress is all torn, and worst of worst things, her hair is absolutely a mess. And one of the heels on her shoes is busted, so she's limping down the aisle. And everybody gets it. They go, oh yeah, we get it. The church of Jesus Christ has been fighting again. Okay, see, I've had the same reaction. I thought, when I first heard this, I thought this was great. The bride of Christ is the church, and she's a mess. Do you agree? We should. There is a quote uh, that explains 
why the situation of the church is the way that it is right now. This is from Eugene Peterson. He was, he's, uh, he's gone on to be with the Lord. He was a pastor uh, for a long time in um, the Northwest. And this is what he wrote. The biblical fact is that there are no successful churches, and I would add no perfect ones. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world, and the Holy Spirit gathers them and does his work in them. In these communities of sinners are, uh, in these communities of sinners, one of the sinners is called the pastor and given a designated responsibility in that community. There you have it. We're looking at ourselves, so let's pray. Father, I just thank you for uh, this, this portion of Scripture in Revelation to show us what the future church will look like, and we pray that we will learn what we need to learn from this passage and grow into the places of our lives where we do need to grow. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Um, I was on my way. As I was on my way here this this morning, um, it, it, I think the Lord impressed me to ask you to do me a favor. If He didn't, I still would ask you to do me a favor. And here's the favor: Would you pray for me this week? The, I've, I have found these scriptures the most demanding and and challenging of any that I've ever read in the Bible. And there's some really tough places in the Bible to really dig in and figure out. And this has been a real challenge, okay? So, so if you wouldn't mind, pray for me. Because when you pray for me over the next two Sundays when I'm preaching from the rest of Revelation, you're actually praying for yourself so that you don't get hurt by anything I say, okay? So will you pray for me? Okay, now I'm going to know whether you will or not by next week. Just saying. All right, let's move on. Now, when we come to this portion of Revelation, starting with, with uh, verse 9, John, if you remember from last week, John has taken a wide-angle view of what is coming, sort of the overtures, the way we approach this, the overture of what's coming in the new heaven and the new earth. Now he is shifting our focus to the glories of the church of Jesus Christ being made perfect. So that's John's focus for us right now, the glories of the church in the new heaven and new earth. And, and here's, here's, here's what he said. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues, and he spoke to me saying, come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So we know the bride of Christ is the church, and this is what John is saying we're going to look at. And the angel then carried me away, uh, John carried him away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. So, so here you have this, this picture where, where there are two images that are sort of overlapping to mean one thing. You have the bride of Christ. The angel says, here's, here's the bride of Christ. Now I want to show you what she looks like. She looks like the new city of Jerusalem. So what we have is the, sort of the blending or melding of two different images that speak one thing, just one thing. This is the church. And, and John is going to see the glories of this church as he is watching this thing unfold. Now, in a real sense, and you've heard this before, a church, the church is not the place we go. It's who we are. We are the church. Turn to the person who came with you this morning and say, did you know that you're the church? Go ahead. 
Tell them. They are the church. Go ahead. Don't be embarrassed. Just, it's okay. The first service did it really, really well. You want to beat them out, right? Okay, God has created this amazing supernatural institution called the church to be a place where we are shaped into the character of Christ. And God has provided in the church, even in our age, he has provided us three life-affirming needs that we have, a sense of uh, belonging, how, how, how we fit into God's plan, in his uh, plan of salvation, a sense of identity, who we are, who we are in Christ, and also a sense of mission, why we're here, what's the purpose for the church. So we're going to look at those three things, belonging, identity, and mission. So let's go on. So he's talking about the church having, the, it's come down, having the glory of God, its radiance like a, a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. Now, at this point, I just have to mention, notice the dominant word in this passage from now on. This is a test of your listening abilities. I will grade you. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And at the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What's the big dominant word in this passage? You are so brilliant. I got all kinds of answers in the first service. It was really weird. I had to prompt them a lot. They got maybe a, a D. I'm feeling generous. Maybe a C minor. You got A plus. All right. 12, yes. Isn't that great? We all understand why 12 is mentioned so often, don't we? Not really. I didn't. I had to look into the commentaries going, what's going on here? Because the imagery from this point on is so... Difficult to understand. What does it mean? It doesn't, <clears throat> excuse me, what I'm saying is it doesn't mean that the, the architecture of the city, the new city of Jerusalem, doesn't look like this. That's not the point. John is communicating something to us by this architecture. You could call it theology by building or something like that. He is telling us something about the nature of the church. So the number 12 dominates this passage, sheer repetition, 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 apostles, and so on. The 12, the 12 tribes are written over the gate. There's an angel standing in front of everyone, not to keep anybody out, but to welcome everybody in. And the description of the holy city uh, may very well look like this, but what's the meaning behind it? What are we to make of the number 12? What does John want us to know about this, this church, the church of Jesus Christ perfected in its glory? Now, the Bible writers use the number 12 th throughout Scripture, especially John. He's using it. He uses it quite often. But then the word, the, the number 12 stands for something completed, some completion or some fulfillment, like the full number or, or the completed promise has been fulfilled. We can think of it in, in those kinds of terms. John used the number to tell us that the new city of Jerusalem, that is the church, comes down from God and 
every saving work of God has been done and completed throughout history. God has saved people from all of the nations, and they are present and accounted for. When John looks out, he sees everyone who has been saved from the beginning of time to the return of Christ. Every single person. Nobody is left out. Do you remember when Jesus uh, said to his disciples, and this is in John 10, he said, I have other sheep that I have to go and bring into the kingdom. There they are. John saw them right there. The angel shows John that God has done everything he said he was going to do from the first time the promise of the gospel was made in Genesis chapter 3. The outcome was never in doubt. God completed his work. He brought in everyone that he saved by Christ into his kingdom. Each person that Jesus saved belongs in the kingdom of God. And that's why we should share the gospel. This is a lot more people out there that belong in the kingdom of God. Now, each one of them got there because he or she was reconciled to God. And God created what he called a new uh, people for himself. And he, he, he went into the world of sinners. He pulled people out, people who were at war with him. They were at war with each other. And the power of God's reconciling grace has removed the barriers that separated those people from him and from one another. And Paul wrote about this in Ephesians chapter 2. He wrote, but now in Christ, uh, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham he was going to bring in so many people. They were going to even be more than the sands of the sea, more than the stars of the sky. So John is looking at this massive multitude of redeemed people. No one left out. No one left behind. Each person's name is known and each person has a unique place. Did you know God knows every name of every person he has ever saved and will ever save? says so in Isaiah chapter 43. He said, I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. Called you by your name. You are mine. Not only that, you can count the hairs on your head. Even you bald guys. There's still some there left, I'm sure. In this life, don't we have a sense of uncertainty about whether or not we belong Right? Do we, do, we, do, do we really fit in anywhere? I, I don't know how many people I've talked to over the years who have said, you know, I don't even know if I belong in my own family. I just don't seem to fit. Everybody is one way and I'm a different way. And I, don't, I just don't know if I fit. And this thought pesters us all through life. And now, having said that, remember who John is talking to. 
He is talking to people who are under persecution by the Roman state. They are under persecution by false teachers coming into the church. And I'm sure there were plenty of people there who were wondering, are we going to make it? How do we know that we fit in? Will these promises of God become real? And I think to them and to us, John wants us to know we belong to Christ. We belong from the first to the last, from the least to the greatest, from the famous to the infamous. We belong. This is a status that we have before God, and nothing can break that status. Nothing can ever do away with it. Nothing, not even our sins, can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. We belong, and John wants us to to breathe in this air of belonging, this, this holy air of assurance that it's true now because it's true then. Our belonging is just as permanent now as it will be then. No one will be able to separate us from God or Christ. Now, because we belong, we have a unique identity as citizens of heaven and as members of the bride of Christ. So John tells us more. And the one who spoke with me, he's referring to the angel, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are all equal. He also measured the wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Please don't ask me what that means. I have no idea. So what's with this? We've got a perfect cube. And we've got 12,000 stadia. What does that look like? Every time an angel in the Old Testament would measure something, like, like you see this in Ezekiel, he's measuring uh, the temple, uh, or, or in one place in Daniel, the, the angel measures the character Belshazzar. It's, it's to measure the character of the person. It's to measure the character of the people who are involved. So this angel, that's what he's doing. He's measuring the character of the church. So let's deal with these numbers. 12,000 stadia. What is that about? And we could ask, why is that important? Well, in um, Roman terms, a stadia, um, uh, a, a st one stadia equals 625 feet or roughly one-eighth of a mile. So you, you multiply 12,000 times 625 stadia, and you result in 7,500,000 feet. That's pretty big. You translate that into miles, and the length of each side of this cube is 1,400 miles. 1,400 miles. So you take this 1,400-mile cube. If you were to plop it down into the United States, it would stretch from the Canadian border to the Mexican border and from the Appalachian Mountains to the eastern border of um, California. That's pretty big. Now, he, I also read that this is 1,400 uh, miles high, and some guy figured out at 12 feet per floor... That's 600,000 floors. Can you imagine a building that tall? And what if there was no elevator? 
what if there is an elevator, but it's, an, it's not an express one, it's local? Okay, so this is just mind-boggling. What, what in the world are we to make of this number, these numbers, and particularly knowing that it's a cube? It's a cube, a perfect cube. What are these measurements saying to us? What is John communicating to us? Well, the dimensions of a cube are no accident. They're not an, this isn't just, I just saw this thing. There's a biblical reason behind this, and we have to go to the Old Testament in order to understand it. And here we understand from 1 Kings 6, verses 20 and 21, the significance of a cube. The inner sanctuary, now this is where the holy place is, the holy of holies, where the high priest can only go one time a year, one time a year. He gets to go into this place, and the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, and it was overlaid with pure gold, and he also overlaid an altar of cedar with gold. So we have a cube inside the very inner holy place of the temple. It's a cube. It's, I, I think the dimensions are something like 30 feet in cubic measurement. But the Ark of the Covenant is there. That's where the Ark of the Covenant's at. That is also a cube. We have a cube inside a cube. So what, what is the purpose of telling us all of this? This is my take. A cube inside a cube speaks of the perfect symmetry of God's righteousness and mercy as seen in the ark, right? His righteousness, Ten Commandments, his mercy, the mercy seat over the top, and his beauty as represented just by the room itself. It was from this place... That the, holy, that the high priest would go once a year making the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement and, and uh, 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 bring the sins of the people before God to be forgiven. So he would go in there. And if, if, he, if he went through the ritual properly, he would live. This is how serious it was. And so then he would come out and he would pronounce to the people that the Lord had accepted their offerings and he would pronounce that their sins were forgiven. Now, this is just once a year, just one time a year. You and I don't need to wait one time a year to tell each other, you know, your sins are forgiven. We can tell ourselves that all day long and we should because that's the gospel. So no doubt the high priest would come out and he would bless the people of God. And this is the way Moses instructed the high priest to bless the people of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And Moses then was told that this is how God's name would be put on his people. Now, I think this, I think this is amazing. Now, not everybody in the crowd that was waiting there was probably waiting with, with, you know, breathlessly waiting to hear their sins forgiven. But I'll bet there were some. And I'll bet they heard that when the, priest, the high priest came out and said, your sins are forgiven. God is your God and we are his people. They went, oh, how sweet that is. They only got it once a year. We can have that 24-7, brothers and sisters. We can tell and proclaim the forgiveness and the love of God to one another. We can even tell it to ourselves. This is what makes the church the church. 
because the presence of God no longer dwells in a temple. He no longer dwells in a cube, cubed room or a cubed box. He dwells in you and me. This is what it says Paul wrote in the New Testament. Do you not know that your body, this physical body we have, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. The Spirit of God dwells in every individual believer. However, the Spirit of God also dwells in the church, in whom the whole structure, that is the whole structure of the body of Christ being joined together, grows into a holy temple. So individually, we carry within us the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Corporately, as we sit here this morning, or any time that we gather, or when any two Christians get together, the Spirit of God is present with you. Not because he is omniscient, which he is, but because you are his child. Individually, we are the temple of God. Corporately, we are the temple of God. God dwells with his people. Now, the, the reason this is important is because we have to remember what happened at a moment in, in, in Israel's history when, when all things went really haywire and Moses would not budge from where they were. Here, for your homework, just this week, just read chapters 30, uh, 32 and 33 of Exodus. Just read these two chapters together. I'll give you a thumbnail sketch of what happened. In chapter 32, Moses has gone up. He's up there in the mount for 40 days. Everybody thinks he's gone. Nobody knows what's going on. And they need some leadership, and they need a God to worship. So they talk to Aaron, Moses' uh, brother, and they say, look, we need something to worship. We need a golden calf like we had in Egypt. Why don't you just take all this gold, melt it down, make a golden calf. Now we've got God, and we can worship, and we can get on with life. So Aaron does it. When Moses comes down off the mountain, he says to Aaron, how did this happen? Aaron said, I don't know. I just threw the gold in and out popped these two cows. Yeah, right. I believe that. Perjury, buddy. So what does Moses do? He melts down these golden calves, lets them cool off, turns them into dust. He makes, makes the Israelites drink them, and God judged them. Many thousands of people died there in the wilderness. Go to chapter 33. The whole tone changes. You have this, this aggressive chapter 32. And then in 33, you see the sorrow of God. As I, the only way I can describe it. He turns to Moses and he says, Moses, you can go into the promised land. I'm, I'm going to let you go. You just, you just go ahead. But I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel, but I'm... I'm not going with you. He, God was so grieved. Imagine that. Imagine God saying, I'm not going to be with you anymore. Moses immediately, this just crushed Moses. I, had, I think it had to. And it just struck him to the core. And he began to intercede with God for the people, which I think is God's plan in the first place. And this is what, this is what then Moses prayed to the Lord because he understood the importance of God with them. If your presence will not go with me, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us 
that we are distinct from every other people on the face of the earth. There it is. There it is. What makes the church different than any other organization on the planet? Different than the Knights of Columbus. Different than any other helpful organization. What is the difference? We do many of the same things, but what's the difference? The difference is God is with his people. That's it. That's the only difference. We're not any better, but we are. God is present with us. That's the distinguishing characteristic of the people of God. It doesn't mean that we're better. It it, it means that those people on whom God has set his love, called the church, are separated from the world and they live for his glory. We look like everybody else. We dress in culturally appropriate ways. We shop in the same stores. We go to the same restaurants. We work. We play just like others. But our identity is so different. You know, self-identities are a very popular thing right now. And, you know, they're labels that we, we attach to ourselves to distinguish ourselves from other people. You know, if you were to ask me, who am I or what am I? I mean, I can all give you a whole list of things, can I? I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather, I got, I'm a friend, I'm an associate pastor, um, what else? That's about it. And you have your list too. But you know what's at the top of the list of every Christian? I belong to God. I'm a Christian. I belong to him. That's the distinguishing mark of my life because of the presence of God. That's all. It's great to have all these other things. I, you know, I love being a husband and a father, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and I'm sure so do you. But it's better. It's just so much better. So the triumphant church in heaven is a place where belonging, is a sense of belonging is enjoyed. A new identity in Christ is understood. And finally, people have a renewed mission. Uh, I need to advance these quickly. So we'll read with verse uh, 18. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like cedar or like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper and the second sapphire and the third agate and the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, and the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz. Uh, the tenth, here we go, the tenth was uh, chrysoprase, and the eleventh jacinth, uh, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street was the city of gold, like transparent glass. Now, again, it would be wrong to dismiss this as not architecturally feasible in heaven. God can certainly do anything that he wants with, to, to create such opulence and grandeur. But again, we have to ask, what's the meaning of all of this? John is reaching back to something 
again, in the Old Testament, having to do with the high priest in order to communicate what the church is all about. So he's reaching to remind his readers about an aspect of uh, high priestly garments that were worn in the day when the high priest would go in before God. And what he wore was, it's called an ephod or a breastplate that was known as the Urim and Thummim. And I'll get back to that in a few minutes, but let's take a look at what it says. You shall make a breastplate of judgment in skilled work in the style of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones, gemstones, a row of sardis, topaz, and carbuncle. That'll be the first row. And the second row is going to be emerald and sapphire and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth and an agate and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be 12 stones. With their names, according to the names of the sons of Israel, they shall be like signets, each engraved with its own name for the 12 tribes. So this is probably what it looked like, an artist's rendering of what that looked like. He's got 12 stones of all these varieties of gemstones and colors, and on each stone is the name of one of the tribes of Israel. You know, Judah, Dan, Benjamin, etc., all the way through all 12. And those the high priest, what he's doing as he goes in before the Lord, he is representing all the people of God in the 12 tribes. And so it's almost like he's carrying the whole people of God with him as he goes in before God to intercede for the people of God. And this, this, um, this ephod was a legitimate means of communication. That's uh, between God and his people. That's one of the ways that it was used. So, for example, if a king might have needed uh, some direction or guidance about a decision to be made, he would talk to the high priest and say, hey, why don't you go in and, and, and go before the Lord, ask the question, see what God will say to give us a, a decision. Um, it, it could be a decision the high court needed to make or even someone serving the needs of a community. And these 12 gemstones, uh, somehow, some, some commentators say they'd light up and how they gave direction, the Bible is really silent. It doesn't really say. But the 12 gemstones, uh, gemstones that John uh, saw in the foundation wall correspond to these gemstones in the breastplate of uh, the high priest. And the difference here on those stones was written the name of the tribes, but on the gemstones of the walls, were written the names of the apostles. And there's a reason for this. Because apostolic teaching is what shapes the life of the church and equips people for the purposes of God. This is exactly how Paul wrote of it in Ephesians 2. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, as you come to him, oh, this is Peter. Uh, we'll go there in a minute. So John's illusion is he's telling us uh, about the church and three things that we need to know about it. And that's where we pick up. Peter says, as you come to him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in Jesus Christ. So the first privilege that we have in this 
priestly ministry that we are given is that is is that we can get come into God's presence at any time permanently remember the high priest could come only one time a year and we come every time we are the priests of God now we are priestly intercessors pleading on behalf of people and governments and nations you know I I know uh, you know voting we're, we're in like a political season already. It just makes your head spin. I get that. And we know we're going to vote. And we know there's going to be an outcome. And, you know, one vote really makes a difference. I get all that. But you know what makes a greater difference? The fact that we can come to the throne of grace every single day and ask God to do things that we can't get done through the voting booth or through activism or anything else. It's really amazing that we have that much power before the Lord to ask him to change things. Now, our access is 24-7, unlike the priest. But the second thing that we learn is that we are God's chosen method to advertise or make known his gracious acts. Peter goes on and says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So who are we? What are we about? What are the, who, who are these people? We are holy, we are chosen, we are a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation, we are a, a people for God's possession. Why? So that we can proclaim the excellencies of God in Christ. We are a people who belong to him, and we get to tell people our stories. You know, think about your story uh, before you came to Christ. Now, your story is going to be different than everybody else's. Just think about your story. My story was really simple. I was really empty, very dissatisfied with life. I knew I needed help. I didn't want to turn to Jesus, but then I did. That's, just, that's my story. And I can tell that story because I know there's a lot of people that can relate to being empty. Now, there's worse things that go on in people's lives, all kinds of addictions, all kinds of failures. I get that. That's, everybody's got a story and everybody should love your story, the outcome of your story and be able to tell it because every single time we do, we are ambassadors who are boasting in God's power and grace. Every single time, no matter how, no matter how little of that story you get to tell, you are boasting in what God has done for you. Now, the third, I, I couldn't pass up figuring, trying to figure out what is the Urim and Thummim all about, so we're going to return to that for just a moment. Uh, now, these, this breastplate is no longer necessary in the gospel. In fact, it probably fell out of use somewhere along the line of Ezra and Nehemiah after they all came out of exile. But I found it interesting that the Urim is a word that can be translated into those who give words of light. I went, oh. Oh, Jesus said we are the light of the world. Huh. Now, then, Thummim, those who give words of truth or integrity. Wow. That's us? See, God doesn't need the ephod of the high priest anymore. He just needs us. Well, need, no. Wants. He doesn't need us for anything. But he wants us to participate. And he wants us to shed the light of the glories of God in Christ because of what's he, what he's done in our own lives to let people know that if they need to know something about truth, we have access to the wisdom of God and we can help them understand it. 
Now, in Proverbs, it's very clear. It says that the things that we can bring in our words to people, words of light, words of understanding, can bring healing. And they bring wisdom. Or they can break somebody's spirit and break them down and bring death. And we don't, we don't want to do that. We want to do the first part. So just a concluding thought before we move into an application. The church right now is imperfect, and everybody said amen, and we are. It's a place, though, where God tells us we belong. The Spirit of God shapes our identity, and we fulfill the purpose of God as his ambassadors representing Christ's church. That's the church this side of heaven. It will be perfected on that side of heaven. Same values, same principles. Now, last week, uh, I mentioned that one of the purposes for doing these uh, four sermons is to get us to do what Paul wrote in Colossians, and that is to, to think about the realities of heaven. If, if we are uh, uh, resurrected with Christ, then set your heart and your mind on things, on the realities of the things of heaven. And there's a reason for doing this. And I put out three reasons last week. I'm going to give you three more this week, three more next week, and three more the following week. So if you're not taking notes, talk to me, I guess. So the number one reason tonight, today, meditating on the realities of things above means holding on to things of this life loosely. You see, as believers, we are linked to the age to come. That's, that's uh, you know, our affections go there, our desires go there, our thoughts go there. Uh, it's not hard to think about what it's like there. But we live in the light of that eternity's value system, the kingdom of God. So that means that we can't really let the joys or the sorrows of this life dominate our lives. Since we live in the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, we are spiritually rooted there. And we have to be careful not to make things here permanent. Things here are not permanent. They're passing away. So why would we want to make anything permanent here? In other words, everything that God gives us, we should enjoy and bless God for and thank him for, but never hold on to it with a death grip. We should be people who would say, oh, Lord, you need that? It's all right. Go ahead. Take it. Everything. Even our marriages. You know, Paul said, okay, y'all are married. I get that. But why don't you act as if you are not married? Meaning, don't hold on to your spouse with a death grip. I heard a pastor say one time, if you're standing over the uh, coffin of your spouse, which is about to be put into the ground, and you can't handle it, you have just made your spouse an idol. Don't do that. Don't do that. Secondly, meditating on the realities above is a powerful means to keep us from temptations and the wounds that come with sin. Have you ever, have you ever had to endure a young couple who are just about to get married? Oh, they talk about each other all the time. They tell you how great and wonderful he is or how wonderful she is and the great things she does. And they tell you this over and over and over again and over again. And over again. It's annoying. Why are they doing that? Why did you do that? Because you were so filled up with affection for your fiance or your, yeah, your future spouse 
that you couldn't think of anything else. You couldn't talk about anything else. You were just filled with all sorts of wonderful, powerful emotions that came into your life as a result of this new relationship. Well, this is exactly what the Lord expects of us and wants to do in our lives so that we are so filled up with delight in the Lord that nothing else really captures our attention and sinks us into sin. In fact, our affections for the Lord and our delight in him becomes a kind of refuge from the dangers of the world and sin. Well, thirdly, meditating on the things above puts life and vigor into all our spiritual disciplines. Now, here's what I mean by that. You know, you, you can, I, I love the spiritual disciplines. There, there, there are several that the Bible speaks of, you know, Bible reading and uh, worshiping together with the people of God, uh, prayer, uh, fasting, you know, just all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things. Now, you can do every single one of them as if you were just checking off a list, right? Just, I prayed today, read my Bible today, I went to church today, I went to this today, I did that today, done. You have absolutely gained nothing in your life. No spiritual advancement there. No brownies for you. Brownie points, I guess. If you get brownies, let me know. <laughs> However, if you are filled up in your affections, in your heart and mind for God, when you do those things, they're going to become powerful motivators to keep on keeping on. I love it that Tom read that, that passage uh, about, uh, from Ephesians. Think about this. I want, God's saying to us, I want you to know the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of God, which you can't know. What? What? You want me to know something I can't know? Here's the reason why. The love of God is infinite. Every single time we sense the love of God overwhelming our own spirit, there's always more of that where it came from. In heaven, it will never run out and we will never get bored knowing the love of God. I, I just can't imagine what that would be like. But I cannot wait. Because I know how it is. We get, you know, things cool off. Our, our hearts get dull. We get tired, whatever. It won't be that way there. We will be able to know something we can't know for the rest of eternity. It's just, uh, it's just amazing. And this is what God has called us to. And so that's why I say, It'll put life and vigor into all of your spiritual exercises, which is why we train like athletes to grow in, the Christ, in Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we realize that we are imperfect people uh, living in an imperfect church We have conflicts with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we get upset when things don't go our way. And we confess that without your grace restraining us and your mercy accepting us, we would be worse than we are. But we also realize that you are making us into the church that will be perfected in love, living in perfect peace on the day of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that you will make us worthy of our high calling in Christ, fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, 
And Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us to walk in a way that honors Jesus in fulfilling our obligation to please the Lord and to produce every good fruit to the glory of God. And we also ask that you might give us opportunities this week to proclaim your excellencies to others, to engage with those who are outside the church, sharing the gospel in conversations with them about the great things you've done in our lives. And we pray that you would use them in their lives to bring them to Christ. We ask you to open doors of opportunity for us so that we can do good to someone else in Jesus' name. And we pray this in his name and everybody said, amen. Let's all stand and sing together before we go.